welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Bush, and today's episode is incredibly special to me. My guest is David Gardner. David is co-founder, co-chairman, and chief rule breaker at The Motley Fool, a company whose mission is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer through expert investment advice. He's also chairman of The Motley Fool Foundation and a board member at Conscious Capitalism. However, not only is David a successful founder, but over his 27 years of professional investing, he has cemented himself as one of the top investors of our time. As an example, In The Motley Fool's flagship service, Stock Advisor, which David started with his brother Tom in 2002, the average recommendation is up 493% at the time of recording and beating the market by 365%. David is also a huge gamer who probably plays more games than you and who has also created several ways to infuse fun and games into his investing business. Now, All of that is a great reason to interview David, but the reason this episode is so special to me is because for many years, David has been a mentor, friend, and an inspiration in my life. I had the privilege of working with David for over a decade as a contributor and then investor at The Motley Fool, and his ever-encouraging spirit played a real role in motivating me to stay hungry, and you guessed it, stay foolish. So it's an absolute pleasure to host him here today on the Novit Gaming Podcast. David, welcome. What a wonderful welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much. And, you know, you've added innumerable value to my podcasts, uh, Rule Breaker Investing. You've made so many appearances over the years. You are missed. It's a reminder, I need to have you back. People will enjoy having you back. But maybe I can add a little value to yours. Uh, it will be just a, a candle held to the value you've added to ours. So thank you so much for the invitation. Of course. And this this hour is going to be really fun. And it's exciting for me to switch chairs around and be able to, to host you um, in, in this episode. Um, and we're going to talk about so many things today. We're going to talk about investing, conscious capitalism, maybe democratization. But before we dive into all of that, let's talk about games. So, so David, I totally and respectfully creeped on your board game geek profile, and I counted that you have played over 50 different board games so far this year, and it's just June. And I am, of course, jealous that you have been able to, to pull that off. But I have to ask, what is your favorite board game so far of 2023? But more importantly, why is gaming so important to your everyday life? Uh, answering in reverse order, last in, first out, Aaron, I gaming is really important to my day-to-day life because I think it combines my favorite things, and therefore I want it as part of my day-to-day. It's fun, challenging, cerebral, and social. And uh, as I think about those things, um, I want to be getting smarter. 
Um, I want to be having a lot of fun. I want it to be competitive, but I'm totally fine with losing. Those 50-plus games that you cited, those are 50 different games, but some of them I've played probably five or more times. Um, I'm often losing those. People should not start thinking that I'm some kind of a great gamer. Um, most of the time, it feels like I'm on the losing end. It's maybe because I've made friends smarter than I am, but it, what I do bring is a love of what's the new, new thing. And uh, for me, at least in the last year or so, the best new game, this is a deep strategy game, uh, is Arc Nova. And Arc Nova, technically it's a 2022 release, maybe late 2021, but just in terms of the quality of that game, you're creating your own zoo and you're competing with others who are creating zoos. You're trying to attract animals to your zoo. There's a spatial kind of build out your zoo um, with hexagons and you're kind of you know building out your zoo. At the same time, you're drafting cards and you're taking um, actions uh, that shift in terms of what you can do and how valuable it would be. So, for example, if you go out and get some animals now, you can't get as many as if you wait one or two turns where you'll get more. So you're constantly weighing um, lots of different things in Arc Nova. It takes an hour to learn, about three hours to play. Uh, it probably shouldn't be played with four players it's excellent with two or three. It also plays solo. Um, there are many games I could talk about. This is not technically a board games podcast, though, so we can leave it there for now. But Aaron, what I want to say about that game is it's totally the opposite of other wonderful recent releases. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know Codenames, for example, which has a great online site, codenames.game, or even a game as simple as Just One, which takes about one minute to learn and uh, lots of hours to enjoy with friends and family. I love a wide variety of games so that you can play things with grandparents over holidays who don't even know the rules, but they can learn and enjoy that and go really deep with friends who might love Arc Nova. Uh, again, many other great games. Aaron, we're not even talking about video games. I know we're going to, but I've actually spent more video game time this week. Diablo 4's release, um, not too long ago, June, early June. Uh, I mean, I've been up to 4.32 different nights in the last four nights playing Diablo 4. So <laughs> I am constantly gaming across all different types of games, and I couldn't not for the reasons cited. I love that so much for you. And I will absolutely drop a link to Arc Nova in the show notes for, for those who are curious and checking it out. It is it is on my my wish list, but I got all of these games that if you're watching on video, you can see in the background, plus many more around the corner that I don't even get nearly enough time to spend on the games <laughs> that I have. Uh, but uh, one day at a time. ABG, Aaron, always be gaming. You and I played another great strategy game together, Terraforming Mars, one of the yes. better releases of the last decade. Um, somewhat analogous in some ways to Arc Nova, but anyway, what a great game that is. The last time we played, my recollection is our mutual friend Emily Flippin beat both of us, but that's a separate topic for another day. We played twice and she beat us both times, and I have not forgotten. But <laughs> let, let's switch gears a bit. You are an investor, a founder, and, and a gamer. But what's super cool is that you have uniquely found ways to blend all three of those together. So, for example, in 2005, The Motley Fool published a board game, Buy Low, Sell High, which, by the way, is in stock on Amazon and rocks a 4.8 stars right now. <laughs> um, and... In 2019, uh, you published a mobile game, Investor Island, which still sits at a solid 4.6 stars on, on the App Store. And I was fortunate to have played the smallest of roles in part of that. But I'm curious, what have you 
learned from creating games inside of a traditionally non-gaming company? Well, I, I think that in, in the case of, I'll just speak briefly to both of them. The first one uh, is a design by Reiner Knizia, who is one of the great living game designers and has become a friend of ours over the years. Uh, the German-born and now Munich-based German game designer Reiner Knizia has published any number, like hundreds of games. And, and that's just the number of games he's created. When you start saying, well, in these 30 countries, it's known by 12 different names and has slightly different rule sets. You can see that there's unbelievable uh, prolific nature to Reiner's success. And so we took a game that we liked that was stock market-ish. It was actually called Palmyra, I think, as a German board game. And as we befriended him, he's like, well, why wouldn't we bring this to the US? And we're like, great. Well, we'll turn it into an actual stock market game and we'll call it Buy Low, Sell High. And it is it is a light, um, thinky, but not time-consuming game that will help people, um, I think, sort of understand how the stock market works in shorter-term dynamics, where it is smart to buy low and sell high. When the hype cycle starts making it look like maybe we shouldn't be buying right now, savvy players would not be buying. They'd be selling as they play the game buy low, sell high. But you and I both know that I try to think outside of hype cycles. I try to actually be invested for the long term, which we can't really do in a board game. That would be boring. So that's buy low, sell high. And then Investor Island uh, has been our effort to create a game that might popularize the stock market more um, with young to adult um, players, uh, but through a totally different um, milieu. So rather than try to turn it into a stock picking game, we decided to turn it into a traditional strategy game. Uh, but what drives uh, the resources available as you play the game is the movement of actual stocks. So it's a crazy mashup of taking real world companies and how their stocks did and make that, instead of rolling dice like in Risk, we actually generate the randomness and resources through stock market movements for a risk-like game. So that's Investor Island. And um, your your question about you know what I've learned from those things is that um, neither one has been a big commercial success. Um, Reiner hasn't needed a commercial success from a Motley Fool version of a game of his to be very commercially successful. And I'm happy to say my company, uh, The Motley Fool, did not need Investor Island to hit it big to, to make it um, an important part of, of our growth and our profits at The Fool. So I think both of them are kind of a lark in a way. Passion projects for me, just things that I really love. Uh, the Motley Fool is not a games-based company, but it was fun to create those, and maybe there will be more in future. Aaron, you and I know there's lots of different gamification going on, and really, the games that I play more frequently than any others aren't the board games like Arc Nova, aren't the video games like Diablo. It's literally gamifying actions that I take from one day to the next as I go through life, and that probably is very idiosyncratic. I'm not recommending it to others, but the games I'm playing most of the time are games of my own design uh, that help me make decisions and do stuff. Well, let's talk a, a bit more about that, because before we, we hopped on, you mentioned that gamifying life is one of your, your core principles. And I'm sure many people listening to this podcast who spend most of their days thinking about games in some shape or form are intrigued by that notion um, and maybe would be interested in thinking about what that means for them. How would you recommend 
someone think about gamifying their own life? So first of all, I would say make sure that it's appropriate. Um, Don't roll the dice on a life or death matter. But maybe do roll the dice on very trivial matters. And that's how it started for me, Aaron. It was in college. I was at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It was like junior year. We're sitting around friends in a dorm room. And we're like, hey, let's, uh, let's get some food. And the conversation would take like 24 minutes. Somebody would say, well, what about Chinese? And nobody would necessarily want to assert their own love or hate. It's kind of like, ah, oh, and then after like five minutes, somebody would say, well, I don't really like Chinese. And I'm like, okay, well, what about, I don't know, tacos? And that kind of thing recurred enough that I'm like, this is ridiculous. So here's the thing. I have a six-sided die here. One Chinese, two tacos, three, four, five, six. Are we committed? Yes. Boom. Two tacos. And at that early stage in life, I realized you actually can accelerate a lot of the rather menial, trivial decisions that we're constantly having to make in life by randomizing. And more recently, uh, throughout the course of my adult years, ever since college, um, I've, I've, in particular, two different ways augmented or done more of that. The number one way that I'm constantly doing every single day is I have my to-do list, my task list. I add up all the emails I need to reply to, all the Slack badges I need to get down to zero, um, all of my to-dos off my actual task list, um, even the texts that I'm responding to. And I aggregate that into a single number. We'll call it 63. And then I'm like, okay, here we go. 34. Okay. That's uh, emails. Oh, it's that email to Aaron. I'm going to drop that email to Aaron Bush right now. Boom. And so I spend zero time debating or procrastinating or avoiding because randomly, number seven, we'll say on that list, is like the thing I want to do least in life. And old me would blow that off till kingdom come. I would probably never get to it. But new me, if I roll a seven, I'm doing that thing right now. I have like this sacred bond that I've made with randomizing my tasks and daily uh, actions. There are weaknesses to this. For example, some things are actually more priority uh, oriented than others. And sometimes I'm not hitting priority stuff because I didn't roll that number. But I believe that I have added the, uh, such a degree of fun and unpredictability to my day-to-day life that this is very addictive and I've done it for decades now. So, And it's worked for me. I've been very productive as a person and I'm often getting to things that I wouldn't have wanted to get to that I would have blown off. So that's really big for me. The last one I'll mention is I also randomize. Ben Franklin was a big fan of thinking of virtues and saying, well, Tuesday will be temperance, neither drink nor eat to excess, Franklin would say. And I've always embraced that kind of mentality. So I have a list of daily virtues that I also randomize. And I do this for some friends and family. So I'll drop a note as I randomly say, oh, today, it's going to be blank. We'll just say it's actually for me today, it's, it's awe, A-W-E, which is one of the positive emotions that uh, Barbara Fredrickson of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, who's kind of the world's leading authority on positivity, um, has, she's identified awe, feeling awe, fear and wonder at some things, the world around us, as one of the 10 positive emotions. So I'm giving you straight from my playbook here um, what I sent out to some friends and family earlier today. So these are examples 
by no means are they only examples, Aaron. And it's really geeky, and thanks for letting me share. But a big part of what I've done with stock picking and the, the work you and I did together is not randomizing which stock I'm going to pick, but creating tournament brackets, battling stocks in my head together, yes. randomly paired against each other in order to see which one ends up winning the March Madness for me picking the stock that month. So constantly gamifying things around me is my orientation. And one thing I, I love about The Motley Fool is that in many ways, at least your work at The Motley Fool is a reflection of who you are as a person in trying to gamify your own life because so much of what you've worked on at The Motley Fool has been gamifying investing. So for example, um, Motley Fool Supernova, the greatest Motley Fool service of all time. Um, Thank you. In, in my opinion. In which you made a lot of great were- contributions, Aaron. <laughs> It was a lot of fun. And for those who don't know, it was essentially um, a service with different investment portfolios for different people to follow. For example, if you're in the middle of your career making making money, there's a portfolio for you to keep regularly investing. Or maybe you're in retirement and you just have a lump sum and there was another portfolio to help you um, best invest there. But what was so fun about Supernova uh, was that we injected stock market games into the service. You also started Motley Fool Caps, which was an open browser-based stock market game for anyone um, to to compete and openly learn from each other um, and and test their their stock market skills. So all the way to even um, the market cap game show on your podcast. And I, of course, have been in many meetings with you that have been gamified and randomized. Um, and and there absolutely is an element of when you do that, it creates more fun, more fun for you as a leader and and building something like that, more fun for me as a contributor and employee and being able to be part of that. And then, of course, more fun for users and customers um, as well. And so my, my question here is that I feel like maybe some of the benefits of embedding fun into otherwise standard products and services are fairly fairly obvious. People want to have fun. Um, But how do you think more companies can embed fun more often? Well, I think it's a great question. And I don't think there's any easy one size fits all answer. Uh, The reason the question is great is because you're simply inviting the possibility that more companies might or that everyone listening to us right now might think about, well, what if I did gamify this or that thing, either personally or professionally? I think there is a heck of a lot of gamification going on these days. I mean, I would say even something like my Hydrate Spark Pro water bottle, which is a smart water bottle, uh, is as I take a swig, it's like, Oh, ka-ching on my app, on my phone, 1.2 ounces. Great, you're, you're a little bit closer to your goal today of 77.9 ounces. And, uh, and that goal changes each day based on the humidity and uh, my activity level. So I would describe that as gamification, especially as you start to invite friends in, and then you're kind of who can finish their water goal, their hydration goal first each day or start creating streaks. So the act of creating races or creating streaks, both different, are things that are part of lots of different applications today, many of which are not traditional games, or we would say do not come from the gaming industry. I think that Hydrate Spark Pro would describe itself as the foremost smart bottle, uh, smart hydration bottle. But secondarily, there's gaming going on. They, they have unlockable achievements. There are a monthly competitions. And so... That's just for your water bottle. 
<laughs> so when I think about you know the possibilities of gaming up almost anything, um, I think part of it is that that's the right question to ask in the first place. Sometimes the answer is no, this is not appropriate for whatever reason. But when it's yes or a new yes, then I think it gets you to a new possibility of growth. And as you said, also fun and enjoyment. And a big part of any culture, workplace culture I would want to be part of is that it's fun. We spend more time at our work most of us each day than with our families. Um, And that's just the math of being an adult. Uh, Therefore, let's make sure that it's as fun uh, as possible. I love it. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears and talk about investing. David, part of why I invited you onto the podcast today is because I don't see a ton of what, what we would call rule breaker investing tendencies in the investing world that surrounds the games industry. Um, for example, most of the, the largest companies in, in the industry are increasingly risk averse and are often eager to maintain the status quo in some ways. Most investing done by companies through M&A has failed and has been misguided in some ways. Um, many individual investors remain short-sighted with much commentary always focused about what what's going to happen this quarter or what's going to happen this year? What is this game going to do for this company? And even among venture capitalists, um, some venture capitalists, there hasn't been enough respect given to hype cycles or even necessarily prioritizing alpha, beating the market. Um, and coming from a company that focuses on um, outperforming, that focuses on doing good, not just doing well, um, and that focuses on playing long-term games with long-term people. Uh, It sort of has been bothering me as a newer entrant into this industry. And that's not to say everyone or every company falls into that category. That's certainly not true. Um, And I recognize there's no one solution to solve everything. But as David, as someone who has trounced the market, who's helped millions of people, millions of investors level up, what advice would you give to investors in and around the games industry to help them refocus, um, find their inner rule breaker? And maybe you can explain a little bit about what that means and help beat the market. That was a heck of a question, Aaron. I mean, there's a lot going on. So I feel like I'll I'll give not a long answer because I feel like there's four more questions that we can discover, rediscover together from that one question. And this is a conversation. So also, I, I do want to say that you are in the games industry. You are um, you are analyzing it. You're thinking about it. I'm not. I'm just a gamer who's an investor. And I some of my best stock picks are indeed video game companies. But as you're saying, um, there a lot of those are more mature companies today. They're not really the upstarts or what I like to call the rule breakers who show up like David did and surprise Goliath and all of a sudden win. That's really what I celebrate and what I've tried to do with a lot of my stock picking over time. By the way, the bad news is David sometimes, in fact, more often than not, loses to Goliath. But when David beats Goliath, it's the stuff um, of biblical proportions. And it is, for investors, it's usually the best returns you can get on the market. So that's what, when I say rule breakers, I'm thinking about the companies that come along, look at how the world is set up, generally by Goliath, and say, let's break those rules. Let's play it differently. 
And uh, let's go against the conventional wisdom. Uh, when Netflix first showed up, everybody thought it was so silly. You were having to like mail your DVDs in instead of just going over to Blockbuster two blocks away and getting your next movie. And it seemed preposterous. Or Amazon, when it first said, we're Earth's biggest bookseller. People are like, why? Uh, you're tiny compared to Barnes & Noble. Like, what are you doing? Uh, so those are c- good examples of spectacular wins, and it's because those companies were breaking the rules. So yeah, I'm looking for that. And to start this conversation, I would say that the games industry. You know, I had a conversation with my son Gabe, who who's designing his own indie game right now. He was raised on games by a dad. You figure this out, Aaron, who really loves games. And so Gabe is a talented uh, game designer and uh, software developer. He got his a degree from Cal Berkeley, um, and he said, "You know, Dad, I think the I think the games industry is hit driven, and it's mature at this point, kind of like Hollywood." So I'm crediting Gabe with this insight, but it's reached a stage of maturity. Pretend it's movies. Not a lot of us are like, what's the new disruptive movie company that's coming along? I mean, we could say streaming, or we might identify Max or HBO as like an edgier. Um, creator, creative type, but for the most part, there aren't forces coming in and directly inside out disrupting what we think of when we think of streaming content. It's just more of. And they've got big budgets and they're very conservative. They're generally risk averse when you start dealing with these really big budgets. Games these days, or a lot of the people running the video game companies, kind of like the movie industry, they're more media moguls and they don't necessarily look to break the rules. They're making the rules in a lot of cases. So I would say the video game industry, Aaron, has gotten to the point where it's more of a rule maker. You and I kind of grew up in an age where this was a novel thought 15 years ago. You know, video games are actually becoming bigger than Hollywood. That sounded like such a radical thing to say or a radical reason to buy Activision Blizzard 20 years ago was that insight. But now it's fairly commonplace. I just saw that the Saudi Arabian, maybe you saw this, Aaron, Savvy Games, they're sort of, they're taking billions of Saudi money are now investing in the games industry because they've gotten onto it too. They're like, we need to be a, an important force in this important industry. I feel like when, once the Saudis show up with big, big bucks, we're probably at an um, inflection point in terms of the size of something and the risk aversion associated with it. So that's a little bit of my thought as to why it's hard to find rule breakers as stocks today in the video gaming gaming industry. Yeah, uh, maybe one other piece of this that we can unpack a bit. And I think that assessment is generally right. Um, although there still are plenty of large, there still are some large companies that are looking to to change the rules and do things differently. And there are give a, plenty give a quick of- exa- Give a quick example, just because I'm sure I agree with you. And again, sure. you're following this more than I am. Microsoft uh, and what Xbox is trying to do with Game Pass and building yeah. an ecosystem that is not as much hardware first, but is more play anywhere and changing the business model. It is going through all sorts of regulatory hurdles, lots of questioning about whether it can succeed. And I don't honestly don't know if it is um, the best model going forward, but there still are some out there. And of course, there are yeah. startups that are leveraging, trying to leverage new technologies such as cloud gaming to create new types of experiences that we haven't seen before. Um, so I, I still think. Do you there remember is a Google spirit. Stadia? Do you remember Google Stadia? 
Of course. And we've talked yeah. on this podcast many times about okay. the Google Stadia and why it didn't work and maybe some other ways in which cloud gaming can be reassessed, uh, both in terms of its impact, but also where it could add value and how it can best serve um, yeah. people. Um, so there, there is still innovation in the industry. Um, Definitely. And it's an industry that still is growing around the world. But one, one piece that I, I wanted to hit on a bit here, too, is just the time frame that people think about. And maybe we can connect this later into some some stock picks that you have made even in or around the games industry. Um, but there still is so much commentary around like, oh, this game performed this way. What does it mean for this company? And what does that mean for the stock? Um, or um, even a lot of executives, and I think this has gotten a bit better, but many executives are thinking about, okay, we got to hit our earnings estimates or Wall Street is going to crush us. And so we got to push a game out maybe faster than we would otherwise. And then there are all sorts of ripple effects to untangle um, later. And of course, I don't think this is even necessarily unique to the games industry. This is probably found in many industries, um, but so much focus on what things mean now. And therefore, what should I do about it now? I feel like is overdone. And I would maybe just love for you to talk about just what you've learned as an investor and following so many companies over the years that have gone through ups and downs and hits and misses and maybe how people who are thinking in terms of quarters or even a year or two can maybe reframe their thinking for the better. Well, I mean, it's a it's a great question. It's as you're indicating, Aaron, it's not just a, a games industry question. Um, the difference between the short-term and the long-term mentality uh, is evident in almost every industry, I would say. And understandably, as humans, we want results. So if we're going to invest um, $250 million into a game or a movie at that scale, we kind of want that to, to hit. Because um, at that kind of scale... Uh, un except for very, very mega cap companies, that kind of scale, that really matters. Like how that game or movie does or doesn't do does count for something. Um, however, um, there are two ways that that's faulty. The first is that um, unless you are rolling the dice with your one app and it all comes down to this one, um, you can get over-focused on the short-term results. And so... Uh, Obviously, one of the great, I would say maybe the greatest blind spot and the greatest reason why, as rule breaker investors, and I include you, Aaron, you and I have beaten the market with our advice and our picks over the years is because we're simply not playing that game. Like David, we've decided to take a different approach. Goliath is all about the short term and short term results and all of the CNBC reporting. So much of the news cycle is a 24 hour cycle across all topics. If you simply don't play by that cycle, You the, the competition is very thin. And so playing the long game, I believe, is inherently uh, superior, uh, but you have to have the resources in order to do that. So that's one way that I think it's classically faulty is that we are all too enmeshed in the here and now. But maybe another way that it's faulty is that I think for a lot of games and movies, um, it should be not viewed as one-offs, but as a progression. Uh, 
One of the things that I love about the video game industry, and I know you know this, um, is that there are sequels. But at least as a gamer, I love video game sequels. I'm not a big movie sequel guy. Um, I, I realize there are some um, heist movies and some... Um, uh, What's the what's the classic Vin Diesel um, space? I've actually never seen any of the car. Fast and this, Furious. Fast and Furious. Thank you. Was it X this year? What we're talking Please. about? Uh, th- there are some movie series that have been going a long time. I've literally skipped all the Fast and Furious. I'm not saying I'm smart. They might be great movies, but in general, this is a generalization. Movie sequels get worse. Video game sequels get better. And in part, that's because uh, the technology gets better and better for for video games. If you saw Jensen Huang, I'm sure you did. I'm sure you talked about this, Aaron. Jensen Huang's um, demonstration a few weeks ago of a live conversation with a non-player character in a video game, which is spontaneous. And uh, so you see how the technology really does make video games consistently better over time. Also, our understanding of game design, like Ark Nova referenced earlier, is such a much better game than the strategy games of a generation ago. We just didn't have the savvy. We've been building like great cities, Rome, building on the bones and ruins of what went before. And assuming we're, we're relatively smart, there's a progression toward better that I've observed. A lot of people think this is pie in the sky or too optimistic, but at least in my experience, both looking at our own lives and over the last couple centuries, things are a heck of a lot better today than they were before. And in video games, since I started with my first one, Pong, in the 19 late 70s, I know how much better video games have gotten consistently. So I think that understanding that there's a progression and you're building something bigger than that one release or that one quarter um, matters a lot. Quick example would be Grand Theft Auto V um, comes out as a video game, but then all of a sudden becomes basically games as a service, gas. And 10 years later, you know, I think it was still the number three selling video game last year. Um, and so, of course, Grand Theft Auto Six, which is expected for next year, um, it, it's no longer a one shot. It's no longer a single quarter's release for a lot of the best games it's about a longer-term experience, Fortnite, etc. Not everybody gets this. Not everybody can do this. It's very hard to do, but I think you have to read things as a progression so you're connecting one title to its future in a way that short-termers don't. And of course, in, a, in an industry that now has more ongoing virtual worlds than ever, too, not even necessarily <laughs> sequels, but just one game that can last a decade or two decades with, with ongoing updates. Um, even if you don't get it right a certain quarter, you always got the next quarter to, to well learn said. and improve. So um, so I think, of course, the industry has changed a lot. But maybe what would be interesting is if we could ground this conversation of long-term thinking and seeing, and seeing through the noise with a couple examples of related stock picks that you have made <laughs> over the years. And I have three here that I think that we can we can get through. And let's start with Activision Blizzard, which you recommended in August of 2002 at a cost basis of $3.08. For context, that pick is currently outperforming by 1,896%. And for many years, from 2009 to 2013, and I remember this because this is when I was starting to invest, um, Activision stock treaded water. It just hovered around, let's call it the $11 mark 
for those four years without going up in any big way or down in any big way. And for you know those in the industry who are so focused on performance this year or this quarter, um, even investors and insiders, many of them probably just wrote off Activision sometime during those years. It's like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. Let's let's refocus on a company that that is going that is going up and is growing. Um, but then Activision went on a tear and has been an incredible performer since then. I'm curious, David, what lessons can you share with us from your time investing in Activision, especially during and kind of related to that era that can be imparted on this group? Well, two things come to mind, Aaron. First of all, um, it was a it's a passion of mine. I mean, I think our best investments are generally going to come from things that we really love or understand. I also really love coffee, and Starbucks has been an amazing stock to hold for three decades. Uh, I, I, I also love um, streaming content, so Netflix has been a huge win. I love buying things on the internet, not having to go to stores. Um, Aaron, because I'm a generation older than you, you young people may not remember we had to we had maps not gps and we had to take a map to figure out how to get to the store and buy stuff at the store so i mean there are so many examples of just great innovations that caught my fancy and i'm like let's buy the stock and uh it's okay to be wrong because we're going to be wrong kind of like that venture capital mentality that you and i share you're going to have a minority of your investments that are going to be real winners. But the good news is those winners will outweigh all of your losers and create astonishing profit on top of that. And Activision Blizzard is a good example. I think it's up like 23 times in value. The market's maybe up maybe four times in value over the last 20 years, something like that. So that's that alpha, that difference between how much better it's done than the market. So I think number one is just that made so much sense to me. I loved the the company. I'm a big Blizzard fan. Again, I played Diablo to the wee hours, but every day I've played Hearthstone for like the last six or seven years. Like I love the products. I feel like I can follow the company. The company's gotten a lot of negative press, sometimes very deservedly so. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the last few years. Um, it was also true 10 years before that. The stock went sideways because it was substantially owned by Vivendi, the French media company, uh, which didn't really prioritize uh, Activision Blizzard. It wasn't necessarily allocated or prized in the way it deserved to be. So once Vivendi sold off its ownership interest, that's where uh, Activision really started to rock. But if, if answer number one, Aaron, is just that when we invest aligned with the things that we love in this world, we're going to do better. That explains Activision and anything else you're going to throw at me in the next five minutes. But the second thing I want to point out is simply holding. And again, I'm preaching to the choir because Aaron Bush knows this, but maybe not every Novik listener is an investor or realizes that the real way to win, for sure, big, the bad news is not immediately, but for sure and big is to buy great companies and hold them for long periods of time. So Activision Blizzard is such a good example of this. We, as you mentioned, I recommended in 2002. It's still an active position today. So 21 years later, yeah, you bet over 21 years there's going to be some downtimes. And you bet you're going to go sideways as Activision did for those four or five years while the market's going up. Activision's not adding any value. Now, we'd held it for six or seven years at that point, and we knew it, right? So we've gotten to know it by holding it, but we were willing to keep holding it. And that was also true, by the way, of Tesla. 
Tesla, for five years, from like 2014 to 19, went sideways as the market rocketed. Uh, Tesla is now perceived to be a gigantic success and a huge successful company. But again, outside the gaming industry, although Tesla has games on the screen. <laughs> this is true. So what is a game company and what's not? But I mean, so this is true of many companies, but you're only going to discover this if you hold them for long periods of time. People who are jumping in, jumping out will never have this experience. And so that patience is the way that you get up the mountain. You have to go sideways for a while in order to have huge wins. And sometimes it's not even sideways. And perhaps even a better example than Activision is NVIDIA, which you recommended in 2005 at a cost basis of $1.63. And that pick is now outperforming by, wait for it, 24,582%. And of course, the headlines recently are about NVIDIA becoming a trillion dollar company. Uh, NVIDIA is not a gaming company, but gaming is the path in which NVIDIA found its initial breakout scale. And right now, everyone is rightfully celebrating the success of the company. But what people forget is that NVIDIA's stock has spent approximately half of its time since that 2005 recommendation trading at 50% or lower its previous all-time highs. Great And of stat. course, there were, there were good reasons for it to be down uh, so much um, at various points along the history, maybe most recently about crypto-related ups and downs, but also gaming-related inventory concerns in the past as well. Um, and so I'd love... David, to maybe just hear from you, how did you not sell uh, during those ups and downs and maintained the ultra long view um, when many other people gave up or moved on? I, I guess it's because I've seen it work more often than not. And again, this is a view that is this very rarefied air that we're, that we're flying around in if we're having these conversations about multi-decade holdings. Wall Street does not do this. The vast majority of coverage of the markets doesn't talk about this, and therefore people don't have numbers to share or stories that they can relate to. But at least for my whole career, I've been trying to drive those numbers and tell the stories so people can see beyond the next bend around the corner, not just think about what's on the next block, but what's in the next city. And so, uh, by the way, when it works, it's just absolutely beautiful. And I also want to make sure, you know this already, Aaron, but I want to make sure I get things wrong a lot, probably more than most people. So, But the, the key is, and it's mathematical, but some people have a hard time ra wrapping their psychology around this math. The key is that the worst you can ever do with an investment is to lose 100%. The best you can do with an investment, well, you just quoted NVIDIA, it's up more than 200, 20,000%. And so I'm going to take those risks all day long. If I were to have picked 11 stocks and 10 of them literally lost everything, and I've never done that. I, I don't think I've ever... I did have Enron in my son's portfolio, so I think we lost it all with one stock pick over the years. It's very unlikely that we're going to lose everything, but just play that game. 10 stocks down 100% each, that's a minus 1,000%, but the other one was up 200 times value. That's a plus 20,000%. Now, that's one of the great stocks of this era. So that's not necessarily the fairest example of what winning looks like. Winning is not as dramatic as that in many cases. Although I will say, I've punched above my weight class in terms of picking the mega, mega winners. But the only way that we can do it is by holding them.
So the way I can manage to keep holding it, Aaron, is because I know that works. And it doesn't work every time, but when it doesn't work, you can't lose that much. When it does work, you make so much that you can be a lazy bum and not worry too much about all your losers. You loser, and I'm saying that to me, not you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, even even NVIDIA is great, Aaron, because, I mean, yes, awesome move in the headlines here in 2023. You probably know this. A lot of the world will have forgotten. But, I mean, 2022, NVIDIA basically went from 300 to 100. It lost two-thirds of its value last year. And we're talking about a stock that's now up more than 200 times for us since 2005. So it's not just about the early days and how hard it is to hold. It could be true in years 18 and 19 um, of your time with a stock. Um, The whole stock market had a horrible 2022. As I talked about a lot of my podcasts, I lost half what I have. Like over the course of 2022, from the high of 2021 to the lows of 2022, I got cut in half at the age of 57 with all that I have. The reason I can keep holding is because that's happened before, multiple times. And by the way, it's going to happen again in future. Bad news. But good news, it doesn't matter if you're playing the game the right way. I love that answer. I got one more example to throw at you. We can make this one a bit quicker, but I can't help myself from also throwing out Amazon.com, which you recommended in September of 1997 um, at an adjusted cost basis of now 16 cents, uh, which that means that that pick is outperforming. (laughs) But you thought NVIDIA was impressive. This one is outperforming by 76,000. 716%. Amazon is, of course, known for its day one mentality, team-driven innovation, and relentless chase of optionality. And so just quickly, David, uh, and this isn't even necessarily about investing lessons, but Amazon has been eyeing and starting to target the games industry a bit more in recent years. How seriously should the games industry take Amazon's entry into this market, do you think? Well, it's so multi-featured because, I mean, you've got, they're selling games. Like most of the video games I bought over the last 30 years, I've just bought on Amazon. Initially, I was buying on GameStop. I would literally buy all my games in person at GameStop when GameStop was a monster back then. And I loved GameStop. We had one right near Full HQ. I pick up, I'm always a day one buyer for most AAA games. And I don't care about the genre. I, I buy in volume when it comes to video games. And so... I mean, I was so grateful when all of a sudden I was like, wait, I don't have to go to GameStop. I can just buy on Amazon. Now, I could also buy at GameStop.com, which I did for a while. But increasingly, Amazon was just better. It was either quicker, day one delivery, cheaper, free shipping, uh, more comprehensive. Uh, I couldn't trade my games in via Amazon, where I could do that at GameStop back in the day. But Amazon, as a game retailer is a very successful large company. But when we start talking about game design, game development, game launching, um, I haven't played their MMO there. I, I don't know. Have, have you played the... Uh, there's a role-playing game, I think, that Amazon has backed or been behind. Have you talked about New this? New World. New World, yeah. I haven't played New World. I, I try to play lots of different stuff, but there's so much stuff out there now. Even just books, or streaming shows. I'm behind on everything. I will die before I get through my library of streaming queue or my actual book, ebook library, to say nothing of my board games, many of which 
I have over 600 now, about a third of which are still in shrink wrap, and video games where I can't even count how many. Um, but the point is, this is a great problem to have, by the way, a society that is pre- creating so much content, so much content across every medium, and we haven't even had AI start driving some of this in force yet. But I mean, it's creating a situation for us, the players, that is a little bit overwhelming. And as Kevin Kelly has talked a lot about, co-founder of Wired over the years, filtering becomes an increasingly necessary and valuable thing to be able to do. Anyway, I think that Amazon should be taken seriously in every context. I'm quite sure nobody's asleep at the switch on this in the gaming industry because Amazon is so universally admired and in some cases feared today and for good reason because it really has become Earth's most customer-centric company, which was the vision that Jeff Bezos put out there in his first investor letter back in the 1990s about what he was trying to build. Well, thank you for sharing your your wisdom on on all these investing. Hey, thank you for going jobs. back and calculating the cost bases, Aaron. I really appreciate I had that. Fun. And, yeah, it's amazing. It it is amazing, and th- you know there are a lot of lot of losers that that we're not talking about, but there are also some other winners like Tesla and you know other companies, Netflix, that have been mega winners as well. So I want people to understand that it doesn't take a portfolio full of these companies. Just holding a great company that you love that actually proves it's great. Let me give it a quick example of a stock I've never owned, Microsoft. I've never owned Microsoft. I have great admiration for it. And wow, Satya Nadella has done such a great job there. So, And I love my Xbox in addition to my PlayStation 5 and my Switch and the previous generations of all of those devices, which are gathering dust in my basement. But I mean, I love what Microsoft is doing. You don't have to own every stock. I don't have FOMO that I never bought Microsoft because there's there's so many other good companies out there. So the main thing, this is the investment lesson part of this podcast, Aaron, is find great stuff, make sure it is great. You'll only get to discover that as it makes decisions, the management team and the business over years. And if you have observed and believe that they are great, keep holding. Don't get shaken out by somebody shouting on CNBC or by NVIDIA losing two-thirds of its value last year. Uh, By the way, it's now recouped all of that and surged to all-time highs, of course. But it wasn't ever about one year for us. For NVIDIA, it's now an 18-year story. For Amazon, it's now a 26-year story. People don't talk about stocks this way for the most part, but this is the only way to for sure succeed, and I think in the biggest way. So highly ironic that it takes fools like you and me, Aaron, to point that out to the world, since so much of the world that's conventional wisdom that you know we got to follow in a very short-term basis and look to sell probably pretty soon, whatever we're holding. Well, let's spend a few minutes talking about business in a way that many people don't talk about, which is through the lens of conscious capitalism. I know that we both know, David, that there are corners of capitalism that do not represent the best of humanity. And as a result, many people have soured on the idea of capitalism and companies. But at the same time, we know that business at its best elevates humanity. It creates progress, prosperity, it educates, it takes care of communities, it serves a higher purpose. And ideally, it unlocks win-wins for everyone involved. And to me, that's at least what I view as the crux of conscious capitalism, which, of course, you are passionate about and The Motley Fool totally embodies. Now, in the games industry, I've never heard that term said. And that doesn't mean there aren't leaders who believe in it or have big hearts or perhaps vouch for it under different terms. But 
there also has been real criticism in the games industry that some companies perhaps over-prioritize one group of stakeholders, like shareholders, sometimes at the expense of others, like employees. And so my question for you, David, is if the games industry were to embrace conscious capitalism more fully, which, by the way, we should probably mention that uh, when you create win-wins for everyone, often you're just going to do better as a whole. Um, But for those who want to better embrace conscious capitalism, what would you suspect would change um, in the games industry? And are there uh, best initial steps that some of these, especially larger companies, um, can take to to start turning the ship more in that direction? Well, it's a great question, Aaron. I'd love for you to give uh, insights and answers. I should be asking you back most of the questions you're asking me because you have such a good head for these kinds of things. My own quicker answer is that Generally, the really big companies are less likely to get the religion in any big world-shaping way because they're just so big. It's hard to turn that boat if you're not hip to conscious capitalism. By the way, just Google conscious capitalism for anybody who's hearing the phrase for the first time. You'll see the four bedrock principles of conscious capitalism. And the one I want to focus on for the answer is just higher purpose. So generally... um, Companies that are serving a higher purpose than mere profit, which isn't to say they don't love their profit, but companies that do the right thing, pulling Tylenol off the shelves at huge expense in order not to endanger people buying stuff at their CVS. Um, Patagonia, which cares as much about the environment as it does its profit margins and has demonstrated that through its actions over the years. There are many examples. I would even say a company like Apple, which you could certainly ding for a hundred different reasons. One of them might be um, near slave labor uh, in in China to, to create some of the machines that we all take for granted today and don't think too much about that. Until in some cases, you start to realize those people wouldn't have jobs at all without Apple. But more importantly, without getting nickel and dime for whatever the latest thing one of the largest companies in the world at scale has done right or wrong, I'll just say that at least for me, Apple has built a trusted brand over time, which is powerful and hard to do by, I'd say, being a cut above, by caring more about me than I felt like I did for my PC purveyor of the 90s. And I think that Apple has always, and I think Tim Cook is a great conscious leader, Apple has tried to do the right thing you know, most of the time, even if it's getting criticized for blowing it sometimes. So, and that's been a great stock and it's probably the best brand in the world. So I am not a cynic at all about capitalism. I think it's a great system. I recognize that there are lots of aspects of it that can be improved, but we also are in danger sometimes of taking it too much for granted what we have in the United States of America today, which is the world's most successful economy. And while not everybody's crushing it all the time, Here's a fun stat I came across last week, Aaron. Mississippi is, in the U.S. 50 states, is the state with the lowest per capita income, Mississippi. Um, And there are lots of reasons behind that, and we're not going to explore that. I just want to point out Mississippi has a higher per capita income than France. So a lot of times we're forgetting in the U.S. that this is an amazing thing that we don't want to take for granted. I don't want to take for granted that I can Zoom to say goodnight to my kids from an airplane for free when back in the day I had to pay a dollar a minute for a collect call to somebody, couldn't see them, uh, feeling the time pressure 
uh, just to connect with them over the phone. There are so many examples of that. Like I, I still wake up each day thinking, this is amazing. If you told me 20 years ago that my car um, could do what it does as a Tesla, that actually I don't go to gas stations anymore. I come home and fill my car up using my plug in my basement. Uh, and it does superhero things that cars of the past never could do. That's just another one-shot example. There are so many of those that you aggregate them over time. Not all of these, Aaron, as you know, are being done by awesome people with the best of intentions. Uh, Many are not, and some are outright bad. But more often than not, in my experience, companies that serve a higher purpose, people that serve a higher purpose, um, end up being the biggest winners of all. I think to close my shaggy dog answer here, uh, the irony is that in most industries, The companies that serve a higher purpose have most of the share of profit in their industries. It's not true of every industry, maybe not true of the gaming industry, but for a lot, it is. And that's telling itself that if you actually serve, it's kind of like happiness. If you try to be happy, you're probably not going to be. But if you go out and serve others and add value to the world, all of a sudden, you'll be really happy. That's the way I feel about profits and purpose. And not everybody gets this. And, you know, the gaming industry... You would know this better than I. Um, may not be getting this, but if, if I were to focus on something there, it's harder as a big company, but I'd say, what's your purpose? Articulate that. Put it there on your website. Help me understand how you are motivated. And then, uh, is it authentic? Do your own employees believe it? And are you demonstrating that with your real-world actions? That's what I look for across all industries, gaming included. One more question for you here before we we need to start wrapping up and we'll we'll move on to our our final lightning round segment. Great. Um, but some listeners might say conscious capitalism is a great ideal to strive for, but it's hard to think about in hard times. So a large number of games companies, for example, have had to recently conduct layoffs or even axe entire projects or studios. Yeah or just have to even rethink their entire strategies and product roadmaps in some cases, which has huge ripple effects for how it affects stakeholders across the industry, from suppliers to employees, the shareholders, et cetera. Um, How should the tenets of conscious capitalism, you think, come into play during times when win-wins seem impossible to come by? Yeah, I I would say that, um, first of all, There is no litmus test that says one company or person is good, one company or person is bad or neutral. I would say we're all on a path. And I would say there's room for improvement for you, for me, for every company we're looking at, for anybody listening to us. If you can't recognize room for improvement in your own life or the things you're looking at, look harder. Um, So I think it's very important to make it clear there's no kind of virtue signaling going on Uh, among real conscious capitalists. It's a recognition that it's hard. And if you're a leader like you are, Aaron, of a startup, you know you're having to think about a lot more things than you did as merely an employee. And you're having to try to integrate things. And sometimes you're having to trade things off in a painful way. So I just want to make it clear that um, no one is perfect. And I just value the people that are trying. And and I'm not going to sit there and cancel somebody because they said something wrong unless they're repeatedly saying and doing things that are wrong. Uh, There's a little bit of one-off, one-shot culture going on out there that I do not participate in, nor do I admire or think it's healthy. So 
with that said, uh, and understanding that none of us is perfect, but it's about trying to do good. Uh, and those that do usually earn the most profit, in my experience. Chick-fil-A is an incredibly profitable um, f- uh, fast food business, and it's kind of the envy of its industry, and it treats people really well, and people love Chick-fil-A. It even makes profit without opening on Sundays. That's a good example in a totally different industry. So, um, you know, be Chick-fil-A by demonstrating that you're trying and that you care about people, your customers and your employees. And those are the two key uh, uh, stakeholder segments to think about here, Aaron, because um, certainly when you lay off employees, and that happens all the time, not just in games, but in many other businesses too, that hurts a lot. How you do it says a lot about who you are, by the way. And uh, we've had to conduct layoffs in the past at The Motley Fool. And one of my times of greatest gratitude are when those employees come back in time. They come back and work for us again, even though we laid them off. Um, That's incredibly um, ingratiating for me. But I, I would say that um, those two key segments, your employees, you need to be treating them well. You, they are the energy that enables your car or your train to get to its destination faster uh, and gloriously or not. Uh, but your customers count for a lot too. And this is this is a little bit of a bone to pick with the gaming industry, right? In some cases, um, is Axie Infinity good for its customers? Or for any CEO, is my product or service helping? Um, and I think that you want to be able to look back in your life and say that you left the campfire better than you found it. So I would be scrutinizing at any industry level, what is my business model? And am I creating wins for everybody in good times and in bad? So a lot of it is about architecting. One of the things I love about Netflix, Aaron, is that Netflix, it's not just that they went to streaming. It's that they literally changed the business model before it had been transactional with late fees. Like, you, you pay four bucks for that video and you better have it back by Monday. Otherwise, it's going to be two bucks more each day. That was pure transaction cash business. And Netflix was so disruptive with its business model. It turned that business into a subscription model. And so... That, to me, was the initial brilliance of Netflix, which people don't really necessarily reflect on, but it was about the choice of business model and how you're making money. And there are certainly games today where you want to be asking yourself, am I playing the game or am I getting played by the game? And especially the younger that we are and the more we think about that, uh, I think the better off we'll be at an individual level. And I favor the companies that are truly adding societal benefit. Second order effects of their business in many cases, good or bad? That's a good question to ask. Well, we could have dedicated an entire episode just to talking through more of the tenets of conscious capitalism and more how to to implement it um, in in real life. But we'll have to to leave that there for now. David, do you have time for one last, call it a five-minute lightning round session? Always. Okay, so I'm really excited about this. I spent many years, as you know, at The Motley Fool, but I never got to play the iconic foolish game buy, sell, or hold. So today I am righting some wrongs and we're going to play (laughs) a a quick round. Uh, For those who don't know, which is probably most of you listening, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to toss out a few ideas, games, trends, and David, you can let me know if you would buy, sell, or hold whatever it is I'm saying. David, are you ready? 
I am absolutely ready. I love this game. I regret we've never played it before, but here we go. Here we go. Number one, buy, sell, or hold Starfield. Uh, that's a really good question. So I was I was a hold to a sell about a year ago as some of the graphics that looked like a generation earlier were being foisted by Bethesda Software upon uh, an unassuming public that thought that Starfield would be amazing. However, given Starfield's recent revelation, uh, the event that they did last week, and the clear ambition that's in this game, and by the way, generally in my, in my world, winners keep on winning. And I think Bethesda is a winner. I think Amazon's a winner. I think NVIDIA's a winner. Uh, they're not going to win every time. But in general, tie goes to those who've demonstrated success. One of the worst things the world ever came up with was past performance is no guarantee of future results. The classic financial TV disclaimer, that is wrong. The vast majority of the time, past performance is our very best indicator of future results. I'm buying Starfield. Buy, sell, or hold artificial intelligence as a tool that will help individual investors beat the market. That's a really fun one. So I'm generally a buy on artificial intelligence for lots of reasons that maybe others are. I realize not everybody's a fan. I sure am. Um, but of course, I love the wrinkle that you gave, which is helping individual investors to beat the market. Um, so I'm going to say a hold. I would never say a sell because most of us don't even know what AI is going to end up doing for society. And I think it's going to be better than most people think. But I still can't articulate. No way. It's like uh, Jeff Bezos in 1997. Tell me about the cloud and Amazon Web Services. He would have been like, I'm sorry, what? He might have had some <laughs> inkling. But if you're really playing the long game and thinking forward about things, you have to be humble. You have no idea really where these things will take us. And we all shape that in part. So the decisions we make together. Anyway, I, I would just say that for me, um, artificial intelligence has been out there for decades for stock market investors algorithmic trading, computers trying to guess which way things will happen, um, neural networks. There has been a huge amount of AI competition already for investors. And I don't believe that it's necessarily led some to make a huge amount of money. If it did, that would become evident, and then other AIs would come along and copy that and destroy it. And so I believe that for the most part, AI is sort of a neutral, it's a nice to have, but I don't think we're all of a sudden going to see that no one can make money anymore because all the AI is making money, or the opposite. I don't think AI is about to create a trillion dollars of value for the investors, the few investors who started that one AI program. Um, I think that that's unrealistic as well. A key dynamic here, Aaron, I realize this is longer than a lightning round answer, but a key dynamic is for every buyer, there's a seller. So there are AIs on both sides of every trade going, uh, and so it's not like it's all one direction and AI is going to power it to the moon. Buy, hold. sell, hold. Okay, it's a hold. How about this one? Buy, sell, or hold Netflix's video game ambitions? Um, I'm going to go with, I mean, spiritually, I think it's probably a sell simply because Netflix is just so much bigger with what it's doing outside of video games that that feels like a little tail that can't even wag the dog. As a long-term shareholder, I think Netflix is my biggest holding. I want it to succeed. So <laughs> my inherent bias is I'm going to call it a hold 
but I'd say a hold at best. And it's not to say Netflix shouldn't be trying this. It's also not to say Netflix isn't succeeding with it. Uh, it is to say that I believe it's a small part of what Netflix is today. And even though sometimes acorns grow to oaks, I think Netflix's identity remains um, ensconced in what it's doing, which is to be the largest global provider of streaming entertainment. I realize games might move into streaming. There's Stadia, there's Xbox Game Pass, there's efforts there, and in a lot of ways it makes sense. I still bought, for example, Diablo 4 as a DVD. Uh, I still like the hard product, but I recognize I'm also starting to download games. I, none of the games on my phone have DVDs attached to them. They're all downloaded from an app store. So I certainly recognize the transition. Anyway, I'm going to go with hold, but with a small H. I like it. Uh, so this next one is the most contentious one I'm going to throw at you. Love you can it. Solve an internal debate, hopefully once and for all. Buy, sell, or hold the Oxford comma. <laughs> uh, I am a gigantic strong buy on the Oxford comma. Now, I know you have a very discerning listenership, 98% of whom know what the o Oxford comma is. But for the 2% who don't, the Oxford comma is when you have a list of things like Tom, Dick, and Harry, you put that comma before the second to last item. In this case, Dick, Tom, comma, Dick, comma, and Harry. And a lot of people don't put a comma after Dick. And I'm not going to say what I think of them. I'm not going to say what I would call them colloquial, colloquially. But um, overall, a lot more clarity is gained when you use that extra comma. There are great, hilarious examples. You can Google them and see when people didn't use the Oxford comma, when they did not include that extra comma, what they ended up saying by mistake because they didn't. So to me, grammar counts. It always will. I'm an English major not just in, at heart, but in truth. And so, yeah, strong by Oxford comma forever hill I will die on. Great. Thank you so much for agreeing with me, David. I got two more for you. <laughs> Great. Uh, buy, sell, or hold Apple remaining the largest company in the world in three years. Uh, I, I'm definitely going to buy that. Um, and when I've been asked this question over the years, this one I've gotten right, because a lot of times it's like, which will be the first to $1 trillion? I was like, Apple? Two trillion dollars, Apple. And the reason is, in most cases, it was already the closest to that position. And so you had to view, you know, Amazon is growing even faster to catch Apple. Um, obviously, this is just fun. It reminds me to mention, Aaron, that the Market Cap Game Show is uh, really important to me. It's a game that I developed. By the way, we didn't really talk about it. We're not going to. But Motley Fool Caps is probably the most important and greatest game I developed that I love a lot, the, the stock picking game on our website. But uh, the Market Cap Game Show, which we're literally playing next week on my podcast, is, uh, <laughs> is, is a game show all about knowing the relative sizing and value of the companies out there. So... Your discerning listenership knows that Apple is number one, but a lot of people don't. They might think Microsoft's bigger than Apple. But using market cap, I'm going to say Apple, winners keep on winning. Tendency to be inertia being the, the key force here. I don't see external forces all of a sudden acting in such a obvious way that it wouldn't still be Apple again three years from now. But we'll see, right? And I don't really, there's no dog in that fight for me. I love the question, though. Yeah. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me either. Apple is, continues to remain incredibly impressive. Final one for you today, David. Buy, sell, or hold a new Motley Fool game. <laughs> um, I'm going to say hold because 
since I work at The Motley Fool, I know we don't have any particular game under wraps that we're developing right now. So I know it's not a buy. Uh, but I'm never going to say a sell because we have a history of creating games. And, you know, the ones we've released to the public, like Investor Island, like Buy Low, Sell High, the board game, or like Motley Fool Caps, which I just mentioned, um, we have a history of doing that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do that again. Uh, at the same time... Um, there are lots of other things we're trying to do with The Fool today. It's sort of like Netflix and gaming. I mean, they're a lot bigger than we are, but gaming's never going to matter number one for Netflix, and it's not going to matter number one for The Fool, but I'm trying to get it to be a good number two. I love it. Well, thank you so much, David, for playing this game with me. I feel <laughs> like I have fulfilled a lifelong dream. Um, so, so that was a bunch of fun, but even more so than that, and we got to wrap up, David, Thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. Hopefully, the games industry can increasingly find its rule breaker spirit and work to better embody conscious capitalism, take a longer term view, among many other things. And it all starts with learning and acknowledgement and hearing from the people who have figured it out, even sometimes in other industries. So, David, again, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. I had a wonderful time, Aaron. Thank you for your great questions and your intellectual curiosity and your wonderful vision for your industry and for the future. I've enjoyed working with you over the years, so I know what a pleasure it is for those to get to learn from you. And I did today as well. Thank you, Aaron. And we'll end with a final full on. Full on. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.